Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. When I wrote this book, At 90 years of age, I said then that it was not easy. Now at 94, I refuse to give up and have accepted the challenge of trying to improve my book, Forgotten Warriors. I want the reader to be better informed and more knowledgeable about World War II in the Pacific. The words of D. Ralph Young from his 2020 publication, Forgotten Warriors 2, Amphibious March Across the Pacific. Welcome, everyone, to our Think Humanities podcast. It is an honor to have Mr. Young as our guest today, and he's got quite a story to tell. Mr. Young, uh, it's so good of you to join us from your home. Uh, Tell us exactly where you are today. Well, I'm located in... uh... Dayton, Ohio. Uh, I'm a, a blue blood uh, Kentuckian, a misplaced Kentuckian in Ohio. So, uh, my home, I was raised in Lincoln County, Kentucky. I was born March 4th, 1925, and lived and retired on the farm that I was raised where I was born. And we still it's still in the family. My son, I deeded it to my son and daughter, and so they're occupying the house now. And you lived uh, in Kentucky in Lincoln County on that farm uh, for um, the first part of your life up until the age of uh, 18 years Seven, old? 17. 17? I, when I was 17, I convinced my parents that I should uh, be allowed to volunteer for a service because if you waited to be drafted at at that period, uh, you didn't have a choice. They put you where they wanted you or needed you. So I got my mother and father's consent and I joined the Navy at 17 and so I could stay out of the infantry. That was my goal. You also uh, write in your book that you used to, um, when you were milking uh, the dairy herd or when you were uh, going out to get the cattle to come in uh, for milking, you used to look up into the sky and and see uh, airplanes and think that one day you wanted to be a pilot. Yes, yes, that's true. I I had great hopes of uh, seeing myself in a leather hat with a scarf flying in the wind <laughs> and being a pilot, but I had to be realistic about and th- my education at that point was not adequate to get into the Air Force or be a pilot. So I had to choose a more realistic goal and I thought the Navy would be best. What compelled you to write this book? Well, What really compelled me, really, is the fact that, um, and I I don't want to minimize the 
heroic and sacrifice and commitment that the people did in Europe. But every year we seem to celebrate Normandy, as we should. But you never hear about Palilu or Tawaba or Tenyan. And after 65 years of not talking about any, to anyone about my service and what I did in the service, I decided to write a book. And I just felt compelled to uh, support my comrades that I fought with in the Pacific. And I'm on my mission now to try to tell everybody in the world that there was a war in the Pacific at the same time there was a war in Europe. Tell me about Richard Krauss and what he meant to you at the time you were just a young soldier yourself. Yeah, well, when I first uh, started researching to uh, write the book, one of the first names I came across was, and I don't remember just how it appeared, but it was Richard Krauss. And I was so impressed with this young man's uh, commitment to his fellow man that um, he, he was seeing his first battle in Palilu, and Palilu was a terrible endeavor for the soldiers who fought there. And they had a, a wounded carman on the front lines, and the commander said, I need a stretcher detail of four men to go to the, get uh, this wounded man and bring him back for medical attention. So, uh, Richard was one of the four. And as they advanced to the front lines, the mortar fire and the gunfire and uh, machine gun fire was so heavy they had to take cover in a foxhole. Then uh, the battle lightened up for a moment and they saw uh, two men coming toward their foxhole and they demanded a password. Uh, they didn't get a password, they got a hand grenade. And this young lad uh, threw himself onto the hand grenade and took the total blow of that explosion and saved the lives of his three comrades. For that, he was awarded the Medal of Honor. So I just, when I looked at Richard's face and how young he looked, uh, I just um, really, I had to tell this story. So that's what compelled me to write that. Um, and I, I emphasized several people in my book that really stood out in my mind as being exceptional uh comrades and exceptional in their commitment to serve the United States of America. Well, tell me some more uh, stories uh, about some of those uh, uh, soldiers that you served with, uh, and also you uh, give us a real historic per perspective on the, the generals and the commanders that, uh, that were active and that you served under in your time. Yes. Yes, I, um, Spruance, in my opinion, was the most brilliant uh, naval tactician um, of all of them, and even including MacArthur, because he, he was the individual or the, the leader that us common sailors 
in the lower grades uh, honored. And most of the officers would uh, have chosen Housley. But um, us lower grades, I think we, ch we would have better served under Spruance. And Spruance, um, he just, uh, the, the Battle of the Philippine Sea, where he uh, took Hosley's place because Hosley developed shingles. And in such a severe case, they had to send him by cruiser to the U.S. to get some medical attention. So he missed the Battle of Midway, and that left the Battle of Midway to Spruance. And Spruance has been, uh, been, historians have said it's, it's unbelievable that we could have won that battle because we were so much outnumbered. And you have to remember, this is only about seven months after Pearl Harbor. So we, we did not have the equipment or the ships or the airplanes to even come close to being uh, combative with the Japanese because the Japanese troops have been fighting for years. They're battle trained. They're um, they've been fighting in China and uh, so I just admire those people who were at Midway and how they were able to accomplish. What they did. That's Admiral Raymond Spruance, S P R U A N C E. And Mr. Young, you, uh, this might uh, also serve as an underlining the fact that uh, we haven't been educated uh, enough uh, about uh, the, the Pacific Theater. We're familiar with names like Nimitz and MacArthur and um, others, uh, but, but uh, Spruance is not one of those uh, top-of-mind uh, commanders that uh, people know a lot about. He was a, just a complete eager man. He, he was ready to attack any time. Spruance was a thoughtful man. He, he um, evaluated and tried to determine what the consequences would be with doing the action at whatever time they started the battle. So that's why he was so successful at in the Philippine Sea because you have to remember the Philippine Sea battle stopped the Japanese from uh, stopping us from going to Saipan and Tinian. And those were the key islands in the Pacific that gave us uh, a base from where the B-29s could bomb all of the Japanese territories in Asia, uh, plus the homeland. So Saipan is only about 1,300 miles from Japan, and the B-29s have a 1,500-mile radius that they can fly. So uh, they, that was why the Battle of the Philippine Sea was so important. It was so important that I was uh, in that battle and went in on, let me explain that 
every APA which I served on, which is an amphibious amphibious personnel attack ship, we take the pick up the trumps troops and take them to the beaches where the invasion is going to occur. So each each APA then sends a group of men in with the troops to be there to repair any guns or uh, machinery that is broken down or uh, to move the supplies away from the docks so that they don't get bogged down and and can't get in. So that's why I was on, I was, I joined the Navy so I could avoid being a troop, but I was a troop on Saipan and Tinian. So that's why I was on the beach. I was part of what we call our beach party. You were, um, uh, in those conflicts, uh, one of the first servicemen to leave um, and, and make that trip uh, onto the beach, which must have been uh, quite dangerous and precarious uh, for you as just a, a young boy from Kentucky. Yes, yes, it was. But, you know, back then at 18 years old and being from Kentucky, and uh, I really didn't have a lot of fear. I, I was prepared to um, lose my life. I didn't want to, but I, I knew that that was could happen at any time. So, yes, and you think about family and friends and home and during those moments of um, when you're uh, approaching the beaches. And you have to look at, uh, see, uh, Normandy gets a lot of publicity because it was a beach landing, but every island in the Pacific was a beach landing, and at Tarara, for example, uh, two out of three Marines never made it to the beach, and the reason was a phenomenon happened that when the moon and the sun are in certain relationships, it creates what they call a neat tide, and the neat tide uh, equalizes the water levels and they don't r- rise as much as they normally do. The LCVP boats required five feet to get over the coral and they only had four feet. So most of those troops were landed at least a thousand more feet from the beach and they had to wade, wade through the water over their head initially and bouncing up and down to get a breath of air uh, to reach the beach. And that's why they were, the Japanese, the commander of the Japanese had bragged that it would take a million men a hundred years to conquer Tawawa. Marines did it in three months. I'm sure there were a number of uh, casualties uh, taken that day by the Japanese as as our troops tried to get to shore. Yes. It, it um you you also write uh about this battle you're talking about that Spruance uh, was uh, directed to head up. The resulting battle saw the sinking of all four of the Japanese fleet carriers with one US carrier being lost. 
the additional loss of aircraft and pilots by the Japanese during this battle nearly depleted their ability to fight in the air. Uh, thus was born the kamikaze as a Japanese offensive weapon. So during that time period, uh, that infamous, uh, a very well-known uh, tactic by the Japanese of committing suicide, of uh, creating a, uh, a path of destruction for their planes, occurred there. Yes, yes. That was uh, um, the most fearful um, thing we faced, really, was a kamikaze, because you could hardly, you could hardly shoot them down. They so determined to crash their planes into your ship that uh, uh, even a direct hit sometimes didn't uh, stop them from flying on in. I want you to um, tell us about your service aboard the USS J. Franklin Bell Mr. Young, as soon as we come back, uh, we're going to hear from our good underwriter friends at Spalding University, and then we'll hear your story. At Spalding University's School of Creative and Professional Writing, students develop mastery of the writing skills, highly prized in today's workplace, including arts and humanities organizations, government agencies, corporations, and small businesses. A professional writing student will explore opportunities writing for trade and consumer media, including reviews, profiles, interviews, and articles for sports, food, travel, health and science, and other publications. Learn more at spalding.edu slash school of writing or email school of writing at spalding.edu. I'm talking to D. Ralph Young, who is uh, an author. Uh, was a, a young soldier at uh, 18 years of uh, age uh, for uh, his service in uh, the U.S. Navy, uh, was a serviceman uh, during uh, World War II in the Pacific, is very proud of his service, went on uh, uh, and had a, a career as an engineer working uh, all over the world, uh, and has now decided at the uh, the uh, the, the young age of uh, 90, 94 years old now, uh, to write his uh, story down and to pay homage and uh, dedicate it to the men and, and women of uh, the campaign in the Pacific. And to give that uh, some credit and some due, uh, as he says, not to take away from anything that happened in uh, the European uh, theater uh, in, at Normandy, but to, to celebrate the Pacific campaign just as much. Uh, Mr. Young, you were um, a, a young uh, person when you were on the USS J. Franklin Bell. And I, I would have to, I, I didn't take the time. I should have done this to look up who uh, the, the uh, your amphibious uh, vessel was named after. I don't know J. Franklin Bell. Tell us uh, when you found out who he was. Well, I was really surprised to find out that he was a native Kentuckian oh. and was raised on a farm just a few miles outside of Shelbyville, Kentucky, which is close to Louisville. And he had the distinction of being awarded the Medal of Honor for uh, the 
battles in the Philippines, and also he served about 10 years as the chief of staff for the military at the, in, in the cabinet. So he was an honored person, and uh, he, they did, the Army, the, the ship USA Franklin Bell was originally a passenger ship. It was converted to a military ship uh, after the war, and it was bought by the Army, and the Army named it J. Franklin Bell. Then immediately after Pearl Harbor, it was transferred to the Navy, and the Navy occupied it um, in early 1942. Uh, the first troops came aboard. So it, it served uh, admirably throughout the Pacific. It was in about every battle in the Pacific, and I was on board for four of those major uh, invasions, which was Saipan, Tinian, Leyte, and Okinawa. Uh, the J. Franklin Bell is, was just a good ship um, and had a, a historical record of many, many battles. So it was an honor, and we were proud to serve on there. Did you ever meet Mr. Bell, uh, uh, the, the commander? No. I met commanders on the ship, but uh, they were not J. Franklin Bell. They were, um, uh, our first one was, um, uh, names slips my mind at the moment, but I served under uh, Commander Ritchie. He was in charge of the, the captain of the ship when I served. Well, let me ask you some questions that you raise uh, in in the back of your book, and you are so proud of uh, of your service and of the uh, uh, the courageous uh, fight that uh, many many Americans uh, uh, participated in uh, during uh, the war and uh, this uh, onslaught of in a in a completely foreign land uh, that I'm sure was very much intimidating uh, for the most part uh, while you were there. Why do you think that the war in the Pacific does not get the, the, the credit or the recognition that the European theater uh, does, uh, even uh, in today's history books? Well, I think there's a few things that I've thought about that I think have played an important part in one is um, we migrated, our families migrated from Europe. And so I think it's only natural that we look upon those people with a uh, little more um, uh, pride and, and of um, admiration uh, than we do the people that we work with in the Pacific Islands, mostly uh, natives, and, and one of the things that I woke up to was that we not only freed the, our country, but we freed a lot of in, uh, people in like the Chamorros in Saipan and Tinian. They were the, the, the native people? These are the native in, 
uh, tomorrow. It's a tribe of people that inhabit the Mariana Islands. And um, not until I went back in 2017 and talked with those people that I had come to really realize, hey, we freed a lot of people other than ourselves from Japanese slavery. And these people are so honored and dedicated uh, and thankful that it was just really heartening to uh, hear all of the comments and the handshakes and the um, hugs and so forth from all the people that we met there. So, again, back to the USH and J. Franklin Bell, it had such a great history, and if if you read the poetry that uh, uh, Tim Churchill wrote about the bell, it expresses just about our, all of our opinions of what the ship really meant to us. And he writes very eloquently about the uh, courage and the battles that the, the bell participated in throughout the war. And the poet uh, was, um, you got permission from his family to include uh, his poetry in your book, Forgotten Warriors. Yes, he was, he was a shipmate and that I've known uh, many years, and he encouraged me to um, use his poetry. So I was gladly and happy to do it and tried to phase it in so it... Um, uh, went along with the temple or the ballads I was describing. Tell me uh, a question that you raise, uh, your response when you are asked, was the atom bomb necessary? Uh, yes, I think you won't find any of us who were fighting in the Pacific tell you that it was not necessary. Because, uh, yes, killing 140,000 people with one bomb is, uh, is terrible. It's terrible. But you have to remember that the Japanese were trained um, to fight and to give their lives. For example, our ratio of killed to wounded for everyone killed in, in our service, we had three wounded. It was just a reverse for the Japanese. They had 18 killed for everyone wounded. Mm. So they very seldom had wounded because they fought to the death. And that would have happened on the island of Japan. They would never, in my opinion, they would never have completely surrendered. As evidence on Guam of a young Japanese hiding out in the jungles 27 years because he didn't get word from his homeland that the war was over. So he, he thought all the dropping of the leaflets that the war was over was propaganda and he wouldn't accept it until he got orders from home. So that's how dedicated the Japanese were, and they would never have surrendered on island. I, I really 
um, feel that we'd still be fighting today with uh, remnants of people hiding out in the mountains in Japan, uh, refusing to give up. Mr. Young, um, what you did for our country uh, was uh, great and, and courageous in its own right. Uh, I know you have lived a, a full life, um, and you find yourself at um, at 94 years old, uh, probably one of uh, very few uh, surviving uh, veterans uh, of th- those campaigns of uh, of World War II. We know that we're losing World War II veterans uh, uh, by great numbers every day. Um, what has it meant for you uh, throughout your life to have uh, served uh, this nation and to have uh, been uh, such a, 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 a an important part of a great campaign uh, that uh, ended up being successful and victorious? Yes, I, I think about it often, and I really am proud that I served my country, and I wouldn't have it any other way. I, um, I, I can't say I enjoyed it, but it was a great experience, and um, provided me with the means of getting an education that uh, helped me through the rest of my life, because I could never have gone to college without the GI Bill, and uh, I just feel so proud to have been part of the greatest generation, and um, I come in on the coattails of a lot of brave people, and so I'm, I'm, I'm also very proud to have served, and uh, let me tell you about uh, one of my favorite and his name is um, James. Um, now I'm getting my mem. I'm 96, almost 96. So oh goodness! All right. That. Okay. Well, you, we, we can uh, we can <laughs> all if, give you. You'll think of it in a minute. Tell us about this this soldier. Well, he was um, a soldier on Saipan. And his duty was to bring up the rear of the group of people he was assigned to. And the Japanese had uh, ways of tunneling and hiding in caves. And the troops would move forward and all of a sudden they would be attacked from the rear. So uh, this young soldier was... Uh, responsible for protecting the rear guard and he personally single-handedly uh, destroyed two 12 to 15 man uh, gun emplacements by himself uh, using satchel patches of, uh, of dynamite and hand grenades and machine guns and during the early, almost next to the last two or three days of the battle on Saipan, he w- was fighting in a massacre that was uh, put on by the Japanese, and he was se- severely wounded. Um, a medic 
got to him and said, um, I'll get you back to the rear room and get some medical attention. And he, the, in trying to do so, the medic himself got wounded. And James said, don't uh, bother with me, I'm done. Just prop me up against a tree and give me a cigarette and a gun. And so the, the medic did what he asked. He propped him up against a tree and lit a cigarette for him and gave him a pistol that had eight rounds of ammunition in it. And then the unit moved back to a more defensive position for the night. And the next morning, as they moved forward, there was Baker. He was still leaning up against the tree, and the cigarette butt was clinging from his lip, and the gun was laying on the ground empty, and eight Japanese soldiers were surrounding his body. So he went out with killing everyone that had a, a bullet for So he was awarded the Medal of Honor. Well, Mr. Young, uh, it's been such a, an honor and a privilege to have you uh, on our podcast today. We uh, wish you the very, very best um, and know that uh, this is uh, an important part of your life and has been, and you are to be uh, lauded for uh, telling the story, telling your story, telling the story of people like Richard Krause and and uh, and Baker. Um, uh, I know that your family is very proud of you, and uh, we're just proud that we could also share your story with a wider audience in Kentucky. And we thank you very much for being with us. Glad to be with you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.